Welcome everyone on our new episode on gender and intersectional analysis. Today we're going to talk about collective memory and specifically we're going to talk about Colombia's case. We're going to talk about the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz, the Peace Special Tribunal created after 2016 peace accords, and how uh, this judicial mechanism has allowed the recognitions of actions from government and criminal organizations to be officially stated leading the admission of truth for many victims and the recording of activities. Uh, our guest today is Paola Molano. Thank you so much for joining us. She's a lawyer from the Universidad Nacional de Colombia who specialized in constitutional law. She holds an LLM from NYU and is pursuing a master's degree in sociology at Universidad de los Andes. Paola has worked in the Office of High Commissioners for Peace. She has worked in Congress, academia, and several Colombian civil society organizations and think tanks. Today, she's a consultant in the International Center for Transitional Justice for the HEP. Paola, thank you again so much for joining us in this conversation about memory and the role of transitional justice and its construction and also about gender and everything we're going to have in this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Paola, for having me. I think there's a lot of experiences and also lessons learned from the Colombian experience. So I'm really thrilled of being here with you. I want to start with um, asking you a little bit about your experience in the Office of High Commissioners for Peace during the peace accords in Colombia and why the inclusion of transitional justice system was important during this negotiation. Well, I participated as an advisor for the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace from 2013 until 2017, I think, if my memory is not tricking on me. And I worked on different issues, mainly regarding gender mainstreaming. And, and I also worked at the early implementation stage of the transitional justice system. And so I didn't participate uh, specifically on the negotiation of the transitional justice system. But uh, afterwards, when we started the implementation stage, we have to consider all the, the inputs and all the, um, the purposes of the system that uh, were considered during the negotiation. So the transitional justice strategies uh, have become an important element in peace negotiations in general. And those strategies are nothing different than a set of judicial and extrajudicial uh, mechanisms devised to help to transit from a situation of conflict or a dictatorship to peace or democracy. Uh, and the shape and the scope of those mechanisms Uh, depend on the context of the country and the purposes of the negotiation. So that said, in Colombia, um, we have other transitional justice uh, experiences before the uh, negotiation with FARC uh, in 2012. Uh, the most immediate experience was the victim's law 
uh, that's still in force. And that instrument acknowledges and frames the discussion uh, regarding transitional justice mechanisms uh, in the language of victims' rights, uh, especially the, the rights to truth, truth, sorry, uh, truth, justice, and reparations for human rights abuses committed during the armed conflict. So that was the hallmark of um, transitional justice in Colombia. And that was something that had to be considered during the negotiation uh, with FARC in La Habana. Um, as a result, uh, and taking into consideration lessons from other uh, experiences, for example, what happened with the, the mobilization of the paramilitary groups, um, what was agreed upon was the comprehensive system of truth, justice, reparations, and non-recurrence. And the principles underlying this, um, this system were satisfying victims' rights, uh, of course, uh, but institutionally speaking, was creating specialized entities as opposed to make one entity in charge of everything. And this was especially important considering the experience of the, the mobilization of the paramilitary groups because all the satisfaction of victims' rights were um, in charge of the judges. So the judges had to um, clarify in truth, but also have to establish the reparations and also have the um, responsibility of considering the participation of victims during the judicial process. So that was not the best experience because it's a lot of work to do for just one person uh, in each uh, legal process. So considering that in the peace negotiation with FARC, the system um, is comprised of three main uh, entities. The special jurisdiction for peace in charge of justice, the right to justice. The truth commission in charge of truth mainly, uh, but also has um, special devices and uh, mandates on memory. And um, the unit for um, searching of the missing people, uh, which also have a mandate on truth, but also satisfaction of, of victims of enforced disappearances or, or for example, um, forced recruitment. Okay. Um, so the comprehensive system was important to continue what have been happening in Colombia since the, the mobilization of the paramilitary groups, but also to taking those, taking those experiences and trying to make something a more um, a exact for the context that has been changing since the last uh, two decades. So it, the, the civil society as well and the uh, institutional experiences have shown that what was uh, agreed with the paramilitaries was not very accurate for the Colombian context and also all the uh, civil society initiatives and 
the legal uh, decisions of the Constitutional Court changed the way in which the discussion was uh, taking place. So this system responds to that um, experiences and to that uh, to those lessons, and also to the um, claims of the civil society organizations that regarding um, organizations of victims are a very strong and very powerful force in the civil society in Colombia. So that was the reason why a transitional justice system was important to um, address and satisfy victims' rights. So we could say that the transitional justice system implemented with the peace accords is like a higher level version of what happened with the paramilitaries and trying to make it better for the victims. Exactly. I think that the change in the language and in the framework uh, that happened with the victims law was a first response to that experience with the paramilitary groups, but as a result of almost um, two years of implementation of the victims law, there were also some other lessons and uh, all that accumulation of experiences um, was taken into consideration in that new, uh, new um, in a quote unquote, because it was not new, it was just um, a, a different kind of mechanisms like systematic, uh, like in a systematic transitional justice view. It was not just um, a different mechanisms, one uh, in one way and the other one in one way, but just a comprehensive system. So in a way it's like a, like a higher a version of of the of those uh, previous mechanisms, but also more accurate for what a civil society was claiming from the government. That's great. About uh, following up on that a little bit, do you believe in this new version that it's accurate to civil society organizations and what they want? Was there inclu an inclusion or a strong inclusion and also maybe talking about the implementation right now of a gender perspective? Were women uh, seen differently? Was the LGBTIQ community uh, included? Uh, like how was this because the political process in Colombia has been really polarized and normally these issues are the first we trade in when something like this is being discussed. But as of today and the implementation, do you believe that is actually happening? I think that um, one very powerful force in Colombia and is especially those you are mentioning, um, women's organization and uh, LGBTQ plus um, organizations, and especially women's organizations as victims uh, of the armed conflict are very organized and they have many, many experiences even before those institutional um, mechanisms and devices were put in place. So their experiences and their strong claims and all the things they have built on their memories and their pain and their experiences have been a strong force to um, claim different responses from the government. So at the uh, very beginning during the 
the early stages of the of the conversations with FARC, um, there were no uh, women at the at the table from any any of the parts, not from the government nor from the FARC. So the civil society organizations, the women's organizations mainly, make a strong claim on um, enhancing women's participation um, at the most highest high level of the negotiators, the negotiators at the table. I mean, uh, so that was one first uh, step uh, regarding including more women. Uh, on the on the peacetalk table, uh, but after that, including more women um, wasn't enough. So the women's organizations also started to claim for gender mainstreaming on the agreements, um, and as a result of their political pressure, and as a result of a huge summit that took place in two thousand and thirteen, the um, uh, Mujeres Paz, uh, y I don't remember the exactly name, but I think it was Mujeres y Paz. Mm -hmm. uh, as a result of that summit, that was a national summit, um, the parts agreed upon the creation on a subcommittee on gender uh, mainstreaming. And in that subcommittee, uh, members of the government and members of the FARC uh, participated in order to make uh, proposals uh, for including gender perspective on the different topics that were uh, agreed upon or that are pending on discussions at that moment. It was in 2014 and 2015, um, mainly when that subcommittee uh, took place. So that was also a result of the pressure of the civil society organization. And in the first meetings, of that subcommittee, uh, many organizations, uh, including, um, of course, feminist organizations, but also women's organizations, and also uh, representatives of gender chapters of indigenous organizations, for example, participated in the subcommittee in order to give in inputs to the members of the parties uh, who were participating in that subcommittee. Uh, for including their um, perspectives and their um, the things that they were considered to include uh, regarding gender uh, perspective and the differential impact on uh, on women of the conflict, um, and that was very a very um, enriching experience because I think that. Uh, as a as a uh, as one of the main characteristics of the negotiation was that in the first stages it was uh, secret and it was very closed, so there wasn't any participation from civil society. So that was one of the first experiences of direct participation of civil society, and that was huge in terms of acknowledging that uh, civil society organizations were thinking on the on, on issues that they want to be included or at least they want to be discussed at the table. So that was the second stage in which I think a civil society participation specifically uh, regarding um, women's rights or diversity issues in general 
uh, was important. And as a result of the subcommittee, uh, it was agreed um, that in order to um, make um, um, a following of the gender perspective commitments, um, a civil society uh, organ uh, or group was going to be um, in charge of making that uh, follow-up of the uh, of the gender commitments as a result of the work of the gender subcommittee. So in the early implementation stage, that uh, organ that it's like a, a group of civil society representative, uh, all of them are women, um, were chosen uh, by a very representative mechanism, a regional mechanism, which also have a national, a, like a, um, it was mainly regional. And then when the region representatives were um, elected, then they, they participate at the national level. So it was intended to cover as much uh, as possible in terms of regional diversity and organizational diversity because the organizations are different among, among them. Even if they are feminist organizations, they are very different. They represent different agendas. So that organ, uh, that group, that small group uh, is trying to, to represent that diversity and um, to be more um, aware or of how uh, the implementation on the gender commitments are taking place. However, I think that this group is not having enough support. And what was at the beginning a good initiative, I think that right now is not as strong as it was supposed to be. But uh, this doesn't mean that the um, women uh, groups and organizations are not participating. Uh, on the contrary, they have acknowledged the, the weaknesses of this, this group and they have uh, implemented different kinds of groups and initiatives to organize themselves to cover that a void that this group is, is um, leaving behind. And um, so I think that right now, there are not uh, strong institutional mechanisms for uh, organizations to participate directly on the implementation. But I think that they are, uh, they, I mean, the organizations are um, organizing themselves to, uh, to make their voice uh, heard in, in these uh, institutional stances. For example, they make um, a periodical, um, a, they make periodical reports on the implementation of the different agreements. And uh, I think they are the only one who are watching specific topics on gender perspective regarding the peace agreement. So I think that despite there, there are no uh, institutional um, uh, 
uh, groups or specific uh, um, mechanisms. They are also doing a permanent uh, work on following the, the implementation of the agreement, specifically on gender uh, mainstreaming and gender issues. How do you think that gender mainstreaming is being applied, for example, to the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz? Is it something that you see in a day-to-day -day basis or it's something that's in the agenda but is not prioritized? And what would it be like the challenge there to make it better or what it's missing in terms to actually consider gender a gender perspective and its implementation? Mm, in the paper, <laughs> Uh, the gender perspective is something that the special jurisdiction of peace has to take into account. Um, and there are specific um, duties that the judges have to take into account. For example, there's a gender commission within a HEP for, um, for something similar to gender mainstreaming, but with the difficulties of that task in different cases with different um, judges, uh, different perspectives. So the mandate is there, but I think it's difficult to implement. Because here there's the traditional discussion of gender mainstreaming in terms of a make something that each and every um, a office and judge have to take into consideration and the, the risks of diluting the obligation of gender mainstreaming. And on the other hand, focus on a specific group uh, and put their uh, the, the duty of gender mainstreaming in that specific uh, in a specific commission or group or anything um, and the risks of that group of being absolutely irrelevant for the for the daily work of the other um, judges and offices. So I think that the, the approach the HEP is taking that is focus all the gender issues on one commission is um, materializing the risk of being um, irrelevant for the other judges and the other cases. Uh, but at the same time, I think that uh, there is a difficulty, a previous difficulty, because you cannot uh, oblige uh, judges and their um, staffers and their clerks to consider gender issues if they haven't think about that uh, never in their life. Okay. Um, so if, even if you have the best institutional mechanisms and the best in institutional design, you cannot um, you cannot change the way in which people uh, see the world and people uh, approach to to the reality um, just because you have a best the best institutional design. 
And I think that those gender issues dilute in the day-to-day -day, uh, work because it's something that it's important only for some people. For example, some female judges are a very, um, I don't know the right word for this, like um, aware maybe of the, of the importance of including gender perspective in the cases they are working on. But at the same time, they are just um, a handful of judges. They are not the whole uh, jurisdiction. But I think that, for example, that there are not a specific case on uh, sexual violence shows the difficulties of, uh, of materialized gender perspective. Sexual violence has been one of the uh, most massive uh, human rights abuses that we faced during the armed conflict. And in the idea of uh, building the, the cases around um, patterns of massive abuses, for example, like um, um, extrajudicial executions or kidnappings shows the importance of some topics for the jurisdiction. So I don't want to say that they don't consider that sexual violence is not um, as important as other human rights abuses, but I think that they could have done more in that regard, at least. Um, so that being said, I think that there are some, some initiatives that are important, but I think they are not enough. And I also think that the judges are not, um, very um, aware and they don't have the enough training to know how to materialize gender perspective because it's not something that you only include in a word or in inclusive language, but you have to take uh, measures to implement in the way in which you treat your staffers, in the ways you draft your decisions. So it requires a specific um, abilities and skills that I don't think they are uh, trained in that regard. Do you believe it's a matter of training or that it also requires like this cultural change in terms of this is important for the Colombian population more than just for the women right organizations or the LGBT community, but more than like this cultural shift. Because what I feel it, of what you were talking about is that they they know, like they read the reports, whatever that are sent to them to like follow them up to word. But then in the implementation, it's a matter of how sensitive you are to the matter because of how judges that are women are doing a great job with it, or at least have it in their priorities, but then it's just not all of them. So I don't know there like if there's like a true way where this could be solved in terms of, is it just about training? Is it just about the agenda or is it more capabilities maybe we need more people we need more money uh or is it just like this needs to change in society in order for the judges to react to it 
I think that's a great question because I think it's not one or the other. Um, the ideal is the cultural shift, but I think it takes time. And unfortunately, they don't have time. Uh, they have just a 15 year mandate and in 15 years, they have to do everything. So I think that the training, it's important because training uh, provide them with specific tools. For example, if you are um, dealing with a case on, I don't know, um, forced recruitment of, um, forced recruitment, the forced recruitment have a specific impact on women because the forced, the people who were forced abducted were their children. And the way in which that, um, that human rights, rights abuse have materialized in the, in the women, in the mothers, in the sisters, in the wives have been specific and have been particular because they were women. So if you provide the judges and the staffers and the clerics with specific tools to uh, analyze the cases uh, from a gender perspective, they have the tools for uh, not only making the decisions, but also for seeing the case in a different way. Perhaps that leads to a cultural shift, but in the short term or in the, even in the medium term, uh, the specific decisions and the acts that they do on their daily base, basis make some changes for women uh, involved in the cases. And not, and not only for victims, it also happens for um, the ex-combatants or the former members of the armed forces. Uh, the, the traditional idea that we have is that they are male, but there are also women. And perhaps the impact on them were different for many different reasons. So if they consider a, a specific tools for addressing, for example, psychosocial attentions during the free versions that they, that they do before the judges, mm -hmm. uh, that is something particular they can do for including a gender perspective that doesn't require the um, cultural change in the way that we all aspire that happens one day. But I think that providing them with a specific tools, for example, regarding or connecting the idea of you as a judge have this obligation. And this obligation is that you have to consider the needs of the population that you are working with. And for doing that, you have these specific tools. That connection between a mandate and a tool um, I think will provide them with um, with different ways of analyzing the cases, uh, the cases making the decisions, and at the end with a result that considers gender perspective as something important, even if that was not the main purpose at the beginning. Okay, okay, it makes sense. 
And about to finish up and shifting a little bit about of, of topic, how do you think the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz is a mechanism of constructing memory and truth in Colombia? And I think it's important to add, and does this include a gender perspective? Um, I think that what HEP can do is very restricted in that regard. Um, because of what I told you at the beginning, that one of the principles was, was to separate the, the entities in charge of uh, satisfying victims' rights. Considering that uh, HEP is in charge of the justice right, the amount, quote unquote, amount truth that they can um, clarify is just the truth that is uh, relevant for legal purposes. And that just one small portion of the whole truth. Um, so that was the, the scope of the work of the HEP regarding truth. Only they, they, they are only focused on a truth that has a legal relevance. It doesn't mean that this kind of truth is not relevant. Of course, uh, it is relevant, but it's not the truth that is going to satisfy the victim's right to truth. And regarding memory, I think that it's even more complex because uh, the, the memory initiatives and the memory processes uh, requires a subjective approach to the truth. Um, and that approach is not something that HEP uh, is, is obliged to do because for what I say uh, a moment ago, they, the, the purpose uh, of, their, of their mandate is to, to prosecute uh, the, the responsible for massive human rights uh, abuses. So their purpose uh, is not helping to building memory processes or supporting memory initiatives. Uh, that's the role of the Truth Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that uh, scenario, uh, there are different mechanisms that goes uh, specific mechanisms that are um, that are intended to support a civil society initiatives of memory, but also provide an institutional space for um, for building something like a collective or national memory. So, at the Truth Commission, I think I think that's the that's the institutional um, a response to that um, especially because they the kind of truth they they are interested in uh, is not the kind of truth that serves to prosecute a person um, so it's a it's a broader truth that includes, for example, 
um, feelings or impacts on the environment uh, or impacts on the um, uh, community links that are not relevant for um, judicial purposes, but are relevant for a, a more a broad approach to truth and a, a comprehensive view of what happened that are a more um, in line with the idea of memory and of truth. Um, so I think that the, the, the specific scenario for that is the Truth Commission. Also, um, I want to add to that, that what we have seen in Colombia regarding memory initiatives um, is very powerful uh, in terms of the civil society organizations initiatives. Um, as I said uh, before, the strength of victims organizations and their resilience uh, have been a very powerful force in the, in the political discussion on transitional justice and victims' rights. So there are many, many, many memory um, initiatives of uh, historical memory uh, and regarding gender and memory uh, relationship. One, two of the most uh, impressive experiences I've, um, I've had the opportunity to, to, to know and to um, interact with uh, were from women's organizations. One is the uh, Red de Mujeres de Mampuján and the other one is called Narrar para Vivir. Those two organizations, one focused on, um, on putting their experiences on fabric. Uh, they need, uh, like, they need um, pictures of their experiences with the conflict. And they have uh, developed not only a initiative of memory, but also a kind of therapy for uh, women of Mampuján who were uh, direct victims or who their, their sons, daughters, husband or family in general were victims of a conflict. And the other initiative, Narrar para Vivir, uh, it has a, a similar um, a approach in the sense of telling what happened, but not uh, on fabric like the Tejedoras de Mampuján, but on telling the stories. Like, like they, they became uh, storytellers and not from their own uh, experiences and their own uh, stories but also in a broader sense of the the stories of their communities and their neighborhoods and from people they know uh, from people that were no longer there to tell the stories so the idea of storytelling also became um a therapy for those women and those are very very powerful initiatives. And I think that they are not just powerful because of themselves or, or for what they represent, but also because they have 
shown other organizations that this is possible and that they can um, organize themselves to to deal collectively with pain uh, in different uh, ways and through different strategies. Thank you, Bao, so much because um, I think that's not broadly known and probably our audience is going to be really excited with this new information about um, the Red de Mujeres de Mapuhan, which is also so important in how, how to construct and how to heal in a community matter. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, for being here with us today and your expertise and all the information you gave us, which is just right on point. And, and, and it's, it's, it's ecstatic to know how much you know about this and how much we have to learn about this topic. Well, thank you so much again for having me and for this kind of discussions and spaces to reflect on uh, very painful experiences, but that at the end are, are leading us toward a different kind of future, I want to think. Thank you for listening to our podcast on gender and intersectional analysis. The views expressed are those of the author and do not reflect the official policy or position of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. See you in our next episode.